Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to the series of interviews with public health leaders as we learn about different perspectives on current and emerging public health issues. Share Public Health will be taking a break the next two weeks. Please tune back in January 7th for a 10-part series on health equity. Today, Suzanne Holly from Wichita State University talks with Brian Castrucci, CEO of the DeBeaumont Foundation, about the importance of telling compelling stories, building strategic skills, and tearing down silos to help communities achieve optimal health. Hi, welcome to the Public Health Leadership Series. My name is Suzanne Hawley, and I'm with the Midwestern Public Health Training Center. And today we have an opportunity to talk about leadership skills and knowledge areas from a personal perspective. So I'm very happy to be with you today. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'm Brian Gastrucci. I am the uh, president and CEO of the DeBeaumont Foundation. I am a public health guy. I started in public health departments, worked a decade in Philadelphia and Texas and Georgia, and back in 2012 had this amazing opportunity to help shape a new philanthropy, and that is DeBeaumont. And DeBeaumont is really concerned about the, the people, the policies, and the partnerships that are needed for communities to achieve their optimal health. And that's a real dedication for us as staff None of us are philanthropists. We all have some public health background to us, which I think makes us unique in the philanthropic space and uh, I think able to really meet the needs of our constituencies. You know, what is there that you can do if the community's not healthy? You, you can't go to church, you can't go to school, you can't go to work. And we've never framed it in that way. You know, the, we've, we've, Umer Shah down in Harris County has started this hashtag invisibility crisis, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. almost is wearing it like a badge. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, we're there. We're the silent warriors. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, have you... Which is better. It, it is, but yeah. most people have never been mugged. Most people have never had interactions with the police apart from a speeding ticket. I have a lot of those. Most people have yeah. never had a use for the fire department. But for some reason, we value those services. You try to cut fire, you try to cut police, then there's a community reaction. Mm -hmm. We did a mm -hmm. poll and police and fire were some of the most important services you could have in a community. Public health polled with parks and libraries. And it's the same idea. Why do we not have that same understanding that I need the police because inherently, even if they're not serving me today, they're providing a safety service to my community. We've not translated that with public health for some reason. So what do you think are the actual persuasive communication skills uh, to, to kind of get people to say, okay, I'm listening? Well, I, I'm, let's even go further back. Okay. Okay. Let's go back to childhood. All right. Okay. And so I have a seven and a nine-year-old. So it wasn't that long ago that they were, you know, three, four, five. And what did they read? You know, my daddy's a cop. My daddy's a fire truck. You know, my, my daddy's a fireman. My mommy's a doctor. Um, there were no books about public health. When my daughter got her Melissa and Doug um, yeah. dress-up doctor set, 
I took the stethoscope, I gave her a notepad, and we did a disease investigation of her dolls. I mean, but, <laughs> you know, she can, she knows what an epidemiologist is. She knows the difference between a physician in clinical care and an epidemiologist. Even when you finally get introduction to, to health in high school, it's about cleaning your private bits and going to the doctor. So when do you actually, when have we ever acculturated yeah, anybody right. about community and how the community impacts your health? And so, I mean, starting from a communication yeah. standpoint, mm -hmm. we're, you know, you're maybe finding out, finding out about the concept when you're in your mm -hmm. 20s, right? And so, but everybody knows what a fireman is. Everybody knows what a police person is. Everybody knows what a doctor does. Everybody knows what a nurse does. Because we acculturate those roles. Teachers, another, these are roles that are acculturated from birth. And then you, you get to public health. And so you then have everyone that you meet says, I don't know what public health is, right? And, you know, it, I don't want it to be horrible things that have to happen for us to even think about it and then see somebody in the front of um, a news camera being a communicator, but we don't know still what public health is doing. It's just let me report an update on something, you know, measles or Zika or disasters. So that's, it's interesting. We, we're working on this phrases project, public health reaching across sectors. And we've done interviews with um, folks from housing and education. And we've not even built a communications toolkit for public health, right? We keep saying social determinants of health, knowing it mm -hmm. is like the mm -hmm. worst messaging mm -hmm. in the history of the world and not done anything about it. And actually what we heard back from these sector leaders was that when you say determinant, it sounds like I can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So it turns me off. Mm -hmm. We need to think about pivoting our communication to conditions of prosperity, conditions of economic development, conditions of hope, conditions of worship. So I'm talking to a priest, I need to say, listen, if you want more people to worship and have a full life in their faith, they need housing, they need better education, and now, I've, without saying public health, mm -hmm. without saying social determinants, mm -hmm. I've given him a reason to join my team, mm -hmm. right? This is like basic salesmanship 101, which we don't teach in schools of public health. So what Phrases is gonna hopefully do is be that communications toolkit for the chief health strategist so that they get some ideas on how to better talk to other sectors with some real tools. Because when you think of, of all that we have to master as public mm -hmm. health leaders now, mm -hmm. it starts with the housing people, the education mm -hmm. people, it's daunting. Mm -hmm. And and many of our you know, many of our public health leaders were trained as clinical providers. So they don't even know that literature. So this is a way with phrases that we can provide some tools to help people communicate better. But I mean I, I we have to tell better stories. Soledad is Soledad O'Brien has said that in a blog and an Asto talk. Stories change emotions like data never can, right? And you need that emotional hook. And so ultimately, good stories plus good data equals power, and power equals change. But we're missing the story. Okay, we need to really find a way to understand what Apple does, what Google does, what Amazon does mm -hmm. in terms of tr uh, persuasive communication and marketing. To, to get those skills before we actually have the data that's three years old or whatever it is, um, to know how to even communicate that when we understand what public health is. I, you know, that just seems kind of, there needs to be some entry level ways of 
of uh, really having a, a more comprehensive discipline, I think. Well, and it's being comfortable telling stories and engaging in this way. It's the zoom in, zoom out, right? So I can tell you about housing and asthma, but I can also start you with Billy, yeah. who was in the ER last night, mm -hmm. who has, has mold in his house. And then I got to zoom out, mm -hmm. right? Because no one starts zoomed out. You've got to get the, the yeah. hook is the zoom in and you get that hook. Mm -hmm. And then you zoom out and say, listen, this is how we help Billy. We help Billy with rental inspection policy, right? But you've got to, and Pew, Pew did this um, brilliantly with the F Food Safety Act. They found a kid who um, I believe passed away due to foodborne illness. And that kid was the poster child of a very complex food safety policy. This kid died because of foodborne illness. Foodborne illness doesn't have to happen. We've made that choice. True. You need this law so that there will be no more of this kid. But that's what we're not doing a good job of is, is and we also have, you know, we have public information officers in any number of health departments who won't engage media. They're reactive. They're not proactive. We have to change that kind of perspective because, you know, the, the opportunity to talk to media is a chance for us to tell them something, but it's that they're going to get you with a gotcha question. So I got all kinds of thoughts in my head from what you're saying. The media thing is, you know, here uh, my sister was a, a tutor in graduate school and she tutored uh, football players at a very big university and they took classes on how to talk to the media. They had all of these things to prepare them for professional life. Um, and so this doesn't happen just magically. I think those are some of those things that we need, we need to do. And But so. it's the revamping of public health education, right? Public health education is all about specialized skills and not about strategic skills. So I remember taking a course on cardiovascular disease epi. Why in the name of God did I take that class? Why did they even offer it? You should have been how to present, how to do, you know, how to not have death by PowerPoint, how to really construct slides, how to get on message, how to deal in different frames, how to talk to different people. But those are not the skills that were being taught. It's not the skills the faculty have. So, True. you know, how do True. you add communication skills? And I agree with you. I think there are athletes who, as part of their training, you know, how do you answer the media? Well, there are any number of new health officials who are engaged in the media for the very first time on their very first day, having had no media training. Right, and, and the amount of control you exercise in a clinical setting, when that, then that person then moves to the public health setting, it's totally different, right? It's not an ER doc where I can say, go do this, go do that, go do this. It's more collaborative. And it's not, this really gets to how we pick our leaders in public health, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I think there are fabulous physicians who are, public health leaders, I don't think it only has to be a physician. And I think we've made a mistake there. Um, I was actually just on, literally before I walked in here, I had tweeted something yesterday that one way to achieve health equity is removing the physician requirement for health officials. And I said San Antonio has done really well with mm -hmm. that. In 2015, they did a charter um, revision and they took away the physician requirement. Colleen Bridger is there now and she is you know, she's, she's killing it. She's passed policies. She's improved the health of San Antonio. And someone tweeted, a, a, prevention, a preventive medicine doc tweeted back at me, chapter 21 of the Texas Health Code says only the health authority can quarantine 
physicians must lead health departments. And I was like, wow. So in one hand, you're talking about equity, but now you're talking about exclusivity because you want to keep the, yes. the handle in that job. Yeah. You know, if health is housing and health is planning and health is architecture and health is food, then there are so many people it's going to actually take to lead a health department and to lead health. It can't be boiled down to one particular role. I agree, and I think about um, leadership in public health is about being able to tell a good story, tell a, an important, mm -hmm. meaningful story. That's everybody, and that really fits in with my definition of leadership. I think leadership is not a position of authority. It's an action. Mm -hmm. It's an action that happens anywhere with anybody, and it begins mm -hmm. with you. So if you can tell your own story, even about your own life and mm -hmm. what's important to you, I don't know if I could talk to anybody and just say, tell me about who you are. And I have no elevator story for who I am. I have my role or my title. And does that sound important enough that you're going to keep talking to me? Mm -hmm. You know, and so, I mean, this is about leadership in, in a sense of it beginning with everybody and, and to tell a story. And just to go back on your, your policy examples. So I, I think you're on to something. I'm like, okay, in Kansas, the two bills that I was um, very familiar with that, that didn't pass, and it took a couple of years to pass, it was um, when they were able to bring the person with the issue who could say, this happened to my child, this is mm -hmm. my, you know, that really real life with all of the data, it changed the story. It changed what happened in the legislature. So that, it's like, yeah, that, that's not a coincidence. The story by itself, you're just some singular person that had a bad experience, so we can write that off. Um, if you have the data, again, there's no emotional you know, bind to that data. They don't, they don't make someone move to action. It's when you have both, right? So, you mm -hmm. know, think about child death review. Think about mm -hmm. the stories that we tell in child mm -hmm. death review. You aggregate enough stories together, and then it's okay. We've seen these seven deaths at this intersection. We need to change the traffic light. Something's wrong here. But getting that traffic like change is going to be telling the story of the mom who doesn't have her kid anymore because of a traffic accident at this intersection and actually there have been 37 accidents at this intersection what are you going to do city now like that's the question mm -hmm. but it's it's a compelling story and, and you know we're administering our grants we're implementing our programs we're developing our interventions when do we have time and especially when it's not a priority and no one's making it a priority, um, when do we have time to learn and hone these communication skills and tell our story, right? But I mean, it, it's academics tend to do it. You know, they'll try to tell stories, but it's often very academic and doesn't, you know, really get to those, the, the heartstrings. And, you know, the field of public health is changing. You know, you've kind of talked about several things. That, that would help in terms of uh, persuasive communication. But I'm wondering what other types of things do we need to do or public health professionals need to do to handle change management? I mean, what you're saying is you got to change your game. So how do you manage this change and then, you know, the future of public health? It, it is it's getting those skill sets to people. You know, change management, systems thinking. It's so easy to think I'm coming to work on a disease, it's much harder to think about, I'm coming to run an organization. So I'm gonna ask you to break that down just a little bit. Um, how do you define change management and systems thinking? These are broad terms, 
And fortunately, in our new public health wind survey in 2017, we did break those down. We did the training needs assessment and got to policy development, budget, systems thinking, change management. And that was actually the reaction we got from the, from the workforce. What about change management? What about systems thinking? And so now each of those has a breakdown of different competencies within the broader umbrella so that we can be much more specific about what skills we need to develop. And we're continuing to look at those data to try to provide the information that training centers and others can use, um, recognizing that there are strategic skills that we need. And that's only a couple years old, this conversation in public health, right? And the, the huge shift in HRSA's public health training center RFP saying, mm -hmm. You know, we want to you to focus on strategic skills. Now, juxtapose that where they were with the last cycle, where folks were like, I'm going to be the preparedness center. I'm going to be the MCH center. Still very much are specialized skills. And so the fact that HRSA has made this, this move, we now need to really struggle with what are the set of competencies we need in systems thinking, in change management, and, and how do we deliver those skills to a workforce who in all likelihood will not have it. So from a, a personal storytelling perspective, how would you, in your own life, in your own work as a public health leader, professional, dealt with change management? It's always about knowing where you're going. If you don't know where you're going, you'll never know when you're lost. And I don't think we often have the idea of where we want to be in mind when we start projects. And do we need to know the end or do we just kind of need to know we're going in the right direction? I, I still think you need, you, you need direction. The more specific you can be, the better off you're going to be because, you know, I've done organizational changes, I've done new org charts, I've redone, you know, uh, whole organizational structures. And you have to buy people in with why are you doing this? Why are you upsetting the apple cart, right? And if you can give them the idea, like, listen, this is where we're going, and this is why we're making the changes. I, I don't believe everyone has to agree, and I believe through a change process, sometimes people have to go. But right now for public health, I would argue that the change, we have to make a major change, right? One from doing programs and interventions mm -hmm. and being kind of health educators, to being advocates, to being the community health strategists. And what public health has done extraordinarily well is set a goalpost. So public health 3.0 is kind of tantamount to putting out a, a party invitation, and it's the best DJ and the best food and the best party of the year, but not putting the date, time, or directions on the invitation. So you've given us this goal, mm -hmm. but no one knows how to get there. And what does that behavior look like? We don't even have best practices, per se, to what does public health 3.0 look like? And this is the conversation that we're not having, right? So change management, we maybe know where we're going, public health 3.0, but what does that mean? And, and right now, the basic fundamental challenge to public health 3.0 is our funding isn't, isn't doesn't support it. It's not about um, moving the health of the public forward. It's about disease-specific, siloed funding. And so right, that's our biggest challenge with change management, 
is the money is not aligned with the goals. So how do we do that? I think it's the what I talked about in today's plenary is this plague of individualism, which I also yeah. think is kind of critical in this conversation because by making everything either medical or criminal, you abrogate the need to have community, right? You got sick, you went to jail, you failed. You failed us, you failed your family, you failed yourself, you failed your community. With no conversation about how the community has failed you. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're, so Austin, mm -hmm. Texas is a mm -hmm. great example. In Austin, Texas, you know, Dell came in, other tech firms came in, housing prices went through the roof. And all of a sudden, they noticed that all the good teachers were leaving the Austin Independent School District because they couldn't afford to live in that, in that area. And so the developers actually built low-income housing for teachers, professionals, who have college degrees, right? No one ever thought about it. No one took a second to say, as we develop this community, with all this building, how does it serve us all? The developers, you know, made a, a pirate's ransom just building everything, right? Predatory lending, predatory buying, moving people out. And no one said, this is not okay. And we've lost that. And, and this is why I think our health is, is struggling. This is why life expectancy is going down is because we're all out for the individual. And even, we're in a spot in our culture right now that even as hospitals are taking on social needs, you only get your social needs addressed when you cost the health system enough money, that it's advantageous economically for us to deal with those. So your hunger is only important as much as it's driving my healthcare costs. So we have you know, focus siloed funding, yeah. and we have the focus on the individual. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you think about change, you know, I think about, well, you know, we ultimately have to meet people where they're at. We have to address where they're at, where our business is at. So um, how, do we, how do we do that? Because we do need to figure out how is this individualistic focus going to shift even one note over on the piano key, like uh, how is that beneficial to move from, well, we also have to move from determinants to prosperity. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this, this aspirational place, you know where we're going as a public health professional and a leader. So we've been real fortunate with our city health project. So city health is a package of nine policies that are bipartisan, generally budget neutral, um, and doable. And we, rate, we rated the 40 largest cities in the country as where they had these nine policies. Now, these policies aren't typical public health. There's some of that. There's Tobacco 21 and Clean Indoor Air. There's also inclusionary zoning and paid sick leave and healthy vending and complete streets. So it's a mix of policies. And we've had 24 policies change since we launched the project. So people got it. Like, when Can we, you say more about yeah, that in I terms mean, of what you mean by policy change? They passed the policy. They didn't have it. Now they do. I mean, it is that. It, it, for cleaner streets, for example. For any one of the nine. So okay. we rate the nine policies individually. So you can get like a gold medal in complete streets, but then you're going to get a, a, a bronze medal overall. So we look both 
across the nine policies and within the nine policies. And we've had 24 individual policies change because wow. we went and we said, look, you know, this is incumbent upon this community to be healthier so that you can have better economic opportunities, you can have economic prosperity, you can have people engaged uh, more fully in their lives, that you can recruit businesses better, people want to live here, right? These cities are competing against each other all the time for businesses and people, and you want to start to create an environment that supports health rather than antagonizes it. And so city of San Antonio is a great example. They've passed uh, Tobacco 21 and paid sick leave. Um, Kansas, city, Kansas City, Missouri, working with their Chamber of Commerce, have set about trying to get a gold medal in city health. Because the Chamber of Commerce was able to say, look, healthy employees is a good thing. And so early pre-K is a good idea. And Tobacco 21 is a good idea. And it's the conversation about how do you see yourself in these policy changes. And we designed City Health not as a health promotion activity, not as a public health program, but as an economic development program, as a community development program, and spoke to leaders in those communities, not just the health commissioner, but using that health commissioner as chief health strategist, how did we leverage some of the relationships to say, okay, why don't we have this? So not only are you in the business of health, you're in a business for health. Absolutely. Literally a business model to do this. So I'm wondering, you know, I'm hearing um, housing, infrastructure, um, different ordinance, you know, uh, Tobacco 21. Mm -hmm. What uh, do you think um, in general, uh, are there other partners that we need to engage to really further the dialogue? And I mean, uh, an actual dialogue to kind of make progress towards this, you know, healthy community, I guess, endpoint. Yeah, it's the business community. I, I believe that firmly. I think that most health officials know the top three reason, the, the top three causes of death in their community, but they often don't know the top three employers. And if you're a health commissioner and you don't have a relationship with those top three employers, there's a problem, right? Because when there's an Ebola outbreak, you need to know them. When you're trying to get something passed through city council, you need to know them. And you need to help them understand, sit with them, and help them understand how public health and better community health is in their economic best interest. Right? That's what it comes down to. I mean, it's a simple, it's the WIFM. What's in it for me? Mm -hmm. Right? If I asked you for 20 bucks, you're going to say, why? It's a natural reaction. Why? Well, if you give me 20 now, I can go over and buy this, this, this new video game and I'm going to sell it for 40 bucks. Okay, and then I'm going to give you 30 back and I'm going to take 10. Oh, okay, I get it now. So I'm going to make 10 bucks. Cool, I'll get here's your 20. But if I just said, because, because I'm cute, because you like me, because I'm trying to do God's work. Like all the public health kind of things that we say, why would I give you the money? Right? And so if we can figure out a way to work with the business community and have them understand their economic interest in promoting better community health, then we can start to move the, the needle. It's the next frontier, right? So there was a time in this country where work killed you, right? Radium Girls, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sinclair's The Jungle, 
black lung, there was a real time when that was happening. And then we got National Institute of Occupational Health and Safety. We got some actual real laws in place that protected workers. And then that evolved as, as workers took on health care to needing to do employee wellness. Right now that you know, most employers have an employee wellness program, whether it's evidence-based or not, besides the point, they have it. There was a time they didn't, right? So we worked to get there. So now the next frontier is helping business understand their role in community health. They didn't do employee wellness because they thought it was cool or fun. They did it to control healthcare costs. And now I'm going to tell you, you can't control healthcare costs just working with your individual employees. So I'm thinking I need to really not only know who my three top businesses are, but what are the three top priorities, mm -hmm. mission, uh, mission, vision of those organizations? And I'm not even sure I might know how to do that, but the only reason why I feel like I wouldn't be overwhelmed by that idea is that if it's in my community, mm -hmm. I, can, I can do that, actually. And the newspaper tells me probably every week a little bit about how I could do that and how we all can do that. And these projects, these exciting projects you have, are looking at communities, you know, that have their own story, that have their own priorities. Do we want to do this or not? Do we want to be healthy? Do we want the bronze medal? Um, so now I'm kind of curious about what your thoughts are related to um, the aspiration of De Beaumont or, or, or public health in general from your perspective of that community change versus like federal policy, you know, where we think, you know, is this where we think we have our skill set and then we can kind of build from there to go up or? Federal policy is great, but <clears throat> public health is the, the domain of the states, right? There's very little, I, I'm perplexed at how you know, Mitch McConnell just said we're gonna do National Tobacco 21, and I'm not quite sure the mechanism with which he will do that. Um, the only way that we got the alcohol age to increase is we tied it to funding. That's what the federal government has. They have funding, mm -hmm. right? But ultimately, the policy work is going to be done in local communities and in states. And what I believe public health is, is changing the community conditions in which people live. So listen, if government's not regulating business, then business will manipulate you you know, to the nth degree. And our challenge right now, and one of the things that we missed with the transition from acute to chronic disease, is that right now, our health and achieving our best health is running counter to profits. Because there are any number of corporate entities whose profits are predicated on us staying fat, addicted, and afraid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm you know, the food industry and big food and how we're marketing unhealthy things to kids. I mean, there's a, I use it in my talks, there's a Barbie Pop-Tarts. Oh, um, I haven't seen that. Yeah, Barbie Pop-Tarts. <laughs> I don't think they're made from real Barbies, but they're Barbie-endorsed <laughs> uh, Pop-Tarts. So that's okay, but Joe Camel was marketing to kids, and we want to take that away. Like, we see other countries actually doing sometimes an incredible job with just addressing things um, in terms of prevention and things like that. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what can we, what can we learn? We can that? learn that the single most impactful public health intervention is, is voting. 
And if you go back to 2016, right, when, when Trump won, and everyone was kind of reacting to that, mm -hmm. down ballot, it was a really good public health election cycle. It really was. There were, you know, minimum wage and soda taxes that were passing. I mean, that's a, a way that we can combat the money that goes. I mean, Berkeley, California is the greatest example, right? Coke, Pepsi, ABA, American Beverage Association dumped tons of money, but the voters said, this is what we want, right? And then when we can tie it, like they have in Philadelphia, to something like early pre-K, right? Because if voting is one of the most impactful public health interventions, early pre-K is like right behind it. Like we know the data are clear, the evidence is there that if you can provide early care and learning to children, they will have a greater likelihood of success. So again, if I had a cure for cancer, but I only gave it to some people, we would see this as a moral atrocity. But I have that. I have the cure to uh, incarceration. I have the cure to poor learning. I have the, the cure to um, some of the racial and ethnic inequality with access to universal pre-K. But we're so, not doing it. So, you know, you're able to provide a really good story with these examples of how to kind of maybe reframe some of the ways that a lot of us have been thinking about things in our, our silo, um, in a way that focuses maybe too much on, on just data and um, how we can really go more to the root cause. Um, you've covered a lot of different areas and it's just, it's exciting to think about. I'm wondering what excites you most about public health in terms of, you know, we've talked about a lot of things. What, what do you feel like you're most hopeful about? So when I think about public health, it, it is, the thing that's always attracted me to public health is the ability to change community conditions and serve, you know, serve a community. <clears throat> Not an individual, but a community. Move a community forward. And in my practice, getting more and more interested in policy change, you know, the real opportunity that we have to make change and just implement what we know works. Being serious about the choices we've made. It, homelessness is a choice that we've made for people. We could build more low-income housing stock, mm -hmm. but the developers would lose money, you know, and the property values might, might suffer. Or, you know, these, we're in a closed system. And someone has to win and someone has to lose. The problem that we have is we've decided that the poor are going to lose, right? I, I should be, I mean, we're, we're talking, I love when we talk about the tax stuff with um, Congress, because when you listen to like a, a Ocasio-Cortez, she's talking about a, a giant tax on your 10 millionth and one dollar. And that's not acceptable, because what we've convinced everybody of is that in our hyper-individualized culture that that's okay you made that money you earned that money that's your money none of us got anywhere alone it's like it really should be called the kind of individual the individualism lie of america right the you go to america and you by yourself can make a million 
but you never you by yourself, right? I mean, we're organized into communities and we have so deprioritized our community identity. I want to see a community health worker organize a candidate's forum, bringing people to the polls, talking about the needs of the community, not the individual patient, but the needs of the community and how we remedy those, right? But we continue to make every conversation about health devolve into pills and procedures instead of policies and partnerships. And, and until we get that fixed, I mean, look at TV at night. I mean, can you watch a show without seeing an ad for a pharmaceutical? My diabetes, I'm a type 2 diabetic, and my disease is well-managed. And when I go to my provider, I, I even bring him like, oh, I saw this one, and I saw this. He's like, why? You don't, you're, you don't need those. Like, right, but the, the pharmaceutical company told me that I need this to control my disease. You know what? I need to control my disease. I need a place to exercise. I need a place to eat healthy. I need time to care, to do some self-care. We're not building communities to do that. And we don't, I don't know that we expect, you know, the, the, the average person, whatever you want to call that, you know, someone who's, who's able to be gainfully employed does expect some things from their employers, mm -hmm. but they don't expect it from their community. Right. And, you know, s some, I guess, maybe unique perspectives is, is wh why does the business person have all the burden, have all the community burden? And they, they're trying to make a profit when it might be more, you know, it could be a business model, actually. Now mm -hmm. I'm kind of even coming around to thinking about um, how you might even be able to focus this, you know, the, the public health professional who, who really needs to know about the business, who needs to be mm -hmm. knowing about politics, who knows what, what bills are being voted on, you know, in, in your district. Um, if we're going to be the chief health strategist, that's not just the chief health strategist in our silo alone in a corner. That's for the community. That's for the business community, the education community. It's saying, how do we achieve health across all of our sectors. But it has to be a community first perspective. And that's just not where we are. Um, even, you know, even to the point where you listen to the, I, I believe at this point, 87 Democrats have announced to run for president. Um, every one of them is talking about Medicare for all. Like it's a solution. Medicare for all has the potential to bankrupt the country if we're not doing housing and education and actually, I mean, all we're doing, again, building bigger and bigger buckets. Medicare for yeah, All is just a yeah, big bucket yeah. to, to take all the downstream mm -hmm. issues. Of, if we're willing to do Medicare for All and we're willing to make that payment, why are we willing to pay for better housing? One of the easiest ways to resolve a lot of our health issues is fund education more equitably. My kids are going to go to grade school. We have great, you know, we have really high property values. So... We're going to benefit, but because you were born in a neighborhood and a zip code that doesn't have that same access to education, you're not going to have as good of experience. You're not going to have access to the computers. And then we wonder why we have disparities, because we've allowed them to happen. We know the solutions. This is not new. We know what works. We're choosing not to implement the solutions that we have. And, and someone, and you know, de Beaumont, public health, someone needs to be the annoying thing in the corner. 
you know, I, I think we need to change and have a public health logo that's the Lorax. Like, we, we need to be the group that speaks for the, for the community. We need to bring community members in and empower their voices in election processes, in regulatory processes. You know, Jerry Maguire is about a sports agent who says we should have fewer clients and better relationships, right? Maybe the health department doesn't even need to be the health department anymore. Maybe we have a health person at the transportation department and a health person at education and we infect everyone that way. Maybe we don't need 800 person organizations. I don't know, but what we need to be able to do is start asking and questioning our norms and our institutions and how we do things, right? I'm so proud of San Antonio for in, in 2015 changing their charter to allow physicians and other people to apply for their health commissioner position. Their health commissioner right now is a PhD. She's passed policy. She's tore it up, right? I mean, that's, that's progress. But we, we have to find, we have to find our North Star and we have to start moving there. We talk a lot about the North Star. We talk about the framework around the North Star, but we're not really moving there. And I mean, I think that's where, especially young people in public health, need to push our practice to policy and not programs and interventions. If you really believe that, if it takes something like redlining. Redlining should be in the Policy Hall of Fame. Say more. Did it not like do what those folks wanted it to do? Did they not pass a policy that has continued a legacy of segregation far after segregation had ended? I'm not saying it's a, it's a moral policy. I'm not saying I like it. But I'm saying you sure as heck need to put it in the Hall of Fame and say this policy did exactly what these people wanted and it shaped society for decades. And we're still paying that price. So we need to understand that 50 years of racist federal policy is not going to be undone by a program or an invention. 50 years of racist federal policy will only be undone with thoughtful, inclusive, progressive policy. And, and we can kind of dabble around the sides and feel good about what we're doing. I did this today at my health department. I talked about this intervention. I gave 17 people group prenatal care. But ultimately, every bit of their health is shaped by the policy environment in which they live. For a long time, that policy environment did not work for people of color and people who were poor. And so it's a simple choice. Right? What are we hearing recently? That two families own the wealth of the you know, bottom 40% of America? These are choices we've made. And hopefully public health, it can be the conscience of this society, of where we are now. Yeah, and it sounds like you know, we have to be really creative and innovative to kind of address some of the things you're talking about. You know, when you think about the, you talked about the commissioner um, not being an MD, you know, then I thought, well, you know, this, this T skill mm -hmm. that, that you talk about with, you know, cross-cutting skills and then also your area of specialization that, you know, we need to promote uh, health, public health lawyers. Mm -hmm public health, you know, businessmen, public health, and then they happen to be in these different sectors, but there are actual positions or there, um, how people can get trained with that. Because really it's kind of branching out those individuals. 
to really be more bicultural, I think, within mm -hmm. that to kind of come up through those rather than maybe, like you're saying, the, just the traditional yeah, Why can't department. an urban planner run a health department? Why can't a housing expert run a health department? Because if you just came out of clinical practice, you don't have any more skills to run public health than the housing guy or the urban development person. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's a different yeah. skill set. Um, but these are the hard, like we all need a big room where we can have hard conversations um, and really start to define what the future of public health is and align the funding appropriately, right? So CDC needs to give money to states to do social determinants and infrastructure development, right? Half of our public health workforce said they're out of here by 2025. So what are we doing with that? If that was physicians, imagine if half yeah. the physician workforce was going to leave in the next five years. There would be congressional hearings. Public health, it's like, well, you already lost 58,000 people in 2008. You can lose some more. You know? But the bill's going to come due. That's the... You know, that's the truth, that sooner or later this bill will come due. And we won't have, we won't have people in low-paying jobs who can be there because they're unhealthy. We won't have people um, at work as frequently as they need to be because they'll be dealing with issues of health. So it's all a really, it's like a Jenga game. And we're getting dangerously close to pulling the wrong, wrong, cylinder out of the Jenga game, and then it all falls down. I think we are that precariously kind of perched at this moment in our cultural development. Um, the economic inequalities can't continue to grow at this pace, and there not be a, a solution. And I think public health is at a critical moment where it can start to lead social change. But if, if we believe we're the social justice warriors, I don't know. I don't know that we're warring that well these days. So we need to figure out the strategies that actually will get social change and social justice. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, there's a lot of things that you've talked about today. I mean, really multiple ways to drill down and, and some really heavy concepts. You know, we are very fortunate in philanthropy because we always say we can speak truth to power. But they never finish that sentence. Like, you can speak truth to the power and lose your job. You can speak truth to power and have your wife leave you. You can speak truth to power and et cetera, et cetera. Philanthropy is very blessed in that we can speak truth to power without consequence. Right? The governor can't mm -hmm. really do anything. If Coke gets mad at me, that's fine. Um, and so we, I think, need to lead in a different way. And philanthropy needs to ensure that the voice of the broader community is engaged in a thoughtful, useful way to change election politics. Now, I don't think that means electioneering. I think that means creating spaces where we can have real conversations and not sound bites. And that we can actually bring a lot of depth to our sound bites. Because even something like, well, you know, your zip code is more important than your genetic code. It's a sound bite. It's a, it's a sound bite. It's a cliche. Now, unpack that. And let's really talk about what that means. And how do we fix it? Because that's the thing. Genetic code, hard to fix. Zip code, not so hard to fix. But God knows we put a ton of money into cracking the darn genetic code. But how do. much have we done with the, the zip code? So it's a hard road. This is not an easy profession, and it's not easy times to do it. But I don't think anyone got into public health 
for you know lucrative easy jobs absolutely have you had any weird experiences in this journey in public health that um, are, are funny or there's things that kind of is part of your own story of uh, what's kept public you know public health is everything so I just think um, I'm just wondering if asking you that question strikes yeah. anything I mean I think there are, <laughs> this is this is you know there are so many great stories both mine and, and other people I always get amused by Jonathan Fielding who was in Los Angeles County forever and his conversation about attending the adult video news awards because Filming of pornography happens in LA. He's the health commissioner. He was there talking about safe sex. And I think that's always the fun of public health. It's why I got into public health, is because you never know where it's going to bring you. Um, again, even I, I was putting together an advisory panel and tweeted uh, to Soledad O'Brien and said, Hey, I'm not a stalker. I'm in a healthcare fund, I'm in a health foundation. Could you help us? I think you tell great stories. And I thought, okay, so she's ever going to write back and in 10 minutes she wrote back and said I'd love to talk to you and now we're doing a documentary on the homelessness crisis in Seattle and the undoing of the tax that was levied against large businesses there Soledad and Deboma so you know any number of times we, we sit around at Deboma and just kind of wonder how we got here I started out as a you know public health worker in Philadelphia Department of Health, and now I'm working with politicians and, um, and, and media people, and um, that's the beauty of public health, is it is everything, which is its beauty and its challenge, but there's not a table I can't sit at as a public health professional, because everything ultimately is health. I love that story, because I think, okay, here's the Brian to Soledad kind of bucket list experience yeah. and it happened and you know I'm thinking okay this is what we're doing right now it's the Suzanne to Brian sure. kind of thought like hey I want to hear you know what you have to say and um, you know it allows just for more discussion and more growing for me and so I, I think that's um, that's a great aspirational thought for people who are coming into the field really you know anything's possible and it may actually be the unique innovation to kind of move the profession forward when we think about who do we need to have at the table. And, and I think it's just, you know, for people coming into the field, it's, it's being brave and courageous. Um, PH Wins mm -hmm. didn't exist. And we built it, and we all sat there after we put out the survey the first time in 2014 and held our breath because there was a non-zero probability that no one would answer the thing. So for those of you who are listening and don't know what PH Wins is, we will provide that information at the end of this yes. talk. Um, we did a Practical Playbook 1, which was Integrating Primary Care and Public Health. Practical Playbook 2, which comes out in May, is Building Multi-Sector Partnerships That Work. This, okay, so I mean, let me be you know, really clear for, for folks. My job is the camp director at Public Health Fantasy Camp, right? I'm a public health nerd who gets to hang out with you know, Jonathan Fielding and John Arabeck and Karen DeSalvo and, and Rishi Manchanda and, and all these folks who I grew up. Well, Nerd Camp has book clubs. Yes, and so, but all these people <laughs> have written for the second edition of the playbook. Wow. It is an amazing author list, and we do want to share it and let people, you know, 
one of the I mean, we've, we've done work to try to keep the price down we don't just do these projects for fun we do these because we're like extraordinarily passionate about it and the whole playbook movement started for us because iom did what iom does really well now national academy of medicine but back then still institute of medicine is they say public health and primary care should work together thank you and good night and it's like wait how how do we no 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 questions thank you we're leaving right because iom sets like a goal post but they don't really give you any of the plays to get there and so th this was it was lloyd mitchner and denise ku from cdc lloyd mitchner from duke um Jim Sprague, our founding CEO, and myself, and we just worked together on how do you convince public health and primary care to work together. Um, no one knew who De Beaumont was at that time. It was a harder road. The second book, again, we have amazing authors that are sharing their expertise in how to build multi-sector partnerships that work. What perspectives do we have to think about? What framings? Um, it's amazing, and I hope it's a, it's a worthwhile read. So really you in our conversation you brought up way more questions for me than solutions but now i'm hearing the solution is in reading that second book at least the first step to the solution the playbook <laughs> um phrases um these kinds of tools that we created to beaumont we have a very clear model where we ask and then we act and then we evaluate and so ph wins um, was our ask we now have a workforce center. We did the national call um, on the public health workforce to kind of establish strategic skills in that vein. And now we're actually working with the regional training centers, with HRSA, trying to fill the gaps because we'll never have as much money as a HRSA, but we're going to be more nimble and quicker to market than a HRSA could ever be, right? And so you need, you need all kind of ships in the fleet. You need the destroyers. And they kind of go slow, and but you also need the little frigates that can dart in and out, and and you know really make some quick impacts. And that's what De Beaumont has, has become. Um, and you know it's amazing. Seven years ago, we were three people in shoddy office space um, in this creepy building, <laughs> and so to go from there to you know being a real public health partner and providing tools to help people do the thing that we value most mm -hmm. is a real mission-driven experience for us. Well, thinking about your book, you know, a book club, a national, you know, groups and um, departments, if that, that was something that, that could be an opportunity to invite people to, you know, you just talked a lot about who you want to partner and how, who do we further the dialogue with across all these sectors. But really, um, how do we even provide a community within our whole public health mm -hmm. to, to develop, you know, kind of a way of talking to each other and, and even using some of these concepts that are that are coming from the book, you know, to have like a common um, perspective or a common discussion? I think that, I mean, we're in a wonderful time of egalitarian media where social media allows people to mm -hmm. communicate in ways they never have. Mm -hmm. and. I do hope that we get more Twitter chats and more opportunities to share. I mean, we'll do a Twitter chat as part of the American Public Health Association annual meeting. Uh, we are also, for our book, doing an a online um, symposium where we can introduce some of the book concepts by the author. So we're not doing it in a fancy room in D.C. because only so many people can get to the fancy room in D.C. We're doing it as a Facebook live stream kind of deal. 
so that everyone who's interested in the information can get it, right? If anything should be easily accessible and egalitarian this day and age, it should be knowledge, right? And that's very empowering and, and perspective because once upon a time, the only people who could have perspective were those who bought their ink by the gallon and their paper by the ton. But now, anyone with a good idea can share that and shape the world. And I think that's a really exciting time to be alive. Well, I hope we can um, also connect through uh, all of the public health training centers to kind of push you know, some of your rollout so then we can challenge mm -hmm. and affirm and you know, kind of uh, continue the conversation. So, Great. yeah. Leadership is solely the ability to influence other people to get to a common good. And so if, if there's a student who has a question, if there's a person on Twitter who wants to learn something, if there's, you know, someone who wants to be led and wants to engage with you, no, there are no celebrities in public health. There are absolutely not, I cannot find one. I don't care who you are, there are no celebrities in public health. We should all be willing to engage with each other in an open and thoughtful way and have dialogue. Because I remember those folks who didn't return my emails when I was a student. I remember those folks who wouldn't spend time talking to students, talking to low staff, you know, staff that's too low on the totem pole, right? We don't need that kind of leadership in public health. We are all people who got together to work on a common good. And if our leaders, aren't being inclusive and aren't really, I mean, we have to be strong and we have to fight, you know, battles that are really challenging with tobacco, with alcohol, with marijuana now. But when it comes to building our profession, we need to be extraordinarily humble and extraordinarily open. And we all, I mean, I do my best all the time. I have the things that I've committed to personally. I, I don't turn down a speaking engagement. And it drives my wife nuts that I spend sometimes a day traveling for an hour talk and then another day traveling back. But if you want to hear what we have to say, I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to engage in a conversation. And I've been to Euclair, Wisconsin. I've been to the Wisconsin Dells in February, which is extraordinarily scary. Uh, but those are public health people. They deserve the same attention that those living in New York and Chicago do. And your family still loves you. And my family still loves me. You know, you can be a, a nice person. And, uh, you know, listening to you, I think about not only do we need to be more open, but the people you're not saying no to, those are people who are Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. Those are people, you know, when I think about um, a professor saying, I don't work with undergrads. Right. And I think, you know what? People are people. And Barack Obama was a freaking undergrad. Mm -hmm. He was a high school student, you know, and, and we don't know where change is gonna happen and who's going to lead that and in what sector they're gonna be in. And, you know, I, I'm guessing, have you had an unexpected yes? Like, hey, I really needed to be here. And this meant more to me than, you know, some headliner. Because there was a recent uh, opportunity to head a policy conference that had mayors and Congress people or to maintain the commitment I had to go to a rural area and speak. And I said, you know, for the brand, the brand is about going to people, not doing the, flan the, the fanciest and glitziest thing. And I still went. One of my team did the policy summit. She did great. And I went to the other place for the commitment that I had made. I mean, I can't stress enough, there are no celebrities in public health. 
right? Like, why can't I sit down and talk to Tom Frieden or, you know, Francis Collins? Or why, why don't we create those, those opportunities? Um, I, again, from a personal leadership point of view, I never say no to a talk. I always try to respond to people on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I always write my own stuff. Obviously, you're doing everything you can to, to kind of keep the conversation going. So, you know, thank you. So I love Twitter because I can actually engage with <laughs> And that's people. the best way to get a hold of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I can engage in a conversation and I love the student engagement. I mean, it's, I'm like an energy succubus. I see all these students who are asking questions and it keeps me energized to doing this work. I mean, I, I you know, love that authentic kind of communication, but I don't have to hide behind handlers and, and I won't because I'm not a celebrity. Well, it sounds like you're creating a lot of um, gratitude on the part of the people that you're you're open to, and then you know that it's certainly um, energizing you. So I think you know having energy in this this is this is a long haul. This whole public health journey that you're on. So I just want to thank you, Brian, okay. for your time here today and talking with you about your ideas. I think um, the listeners are going to really appreciate that. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you tune in for the next episode of Share Public Health. Special thanks to our guests and to Katie Brandert, Brandon Grimm, Joy Harris, Roger Heilman, Janine Moody, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner with the Midwestern Public Health Training Center. Theme music was composed and produced by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration, Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.